Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, ideas, half-truths, and conspiracies. And I sort of stuck ideas in there because this episode is going to be an interesting one. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 115 for the 2nd, 3rd of July, 2014. And the ideas that we're going to be discussing today are through an interview with Tom Bridgman, wherein we're going to discuss the Electric Universe, a topic requested by James, Fred, and several other listeners, but one that I've avoided because electricity and I don't really get along. We have a, a restraining order where it allows me to live, and I don't try to pretend to understand it. Tom, however, loves this stuff. Tom Bridgman spent his formative years exploring science, pseudoscience, and skepticism in a small farm town. He studied particle physics at his first undergraduate institution before dropping out in the early days of the microcomputer revolution to do software development, small business consulting, and night shift computer operations. Seeking more challenges, Tom returned to college to complete his undergraduate degree in physics and continued on to graduate school in physics and astronomy at Clemson University in South Carolina, where he studied nuclear astrophysics and black holes. After graduation, he went to work as an instrument specialist for the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory. A fortuitous timing of budget cuts sent him to his current day job where he creates data-driven visualizations of space science data for education and public outreach, and he gets to apply his interests in science, education, programming, and computer graphics. So welcome to the show, Tom Bridgman. Thank you, Stuart. Good to it's, be on. Oh, it's great to have you on, finally. it's. I told people that it's sort of like the Flintstones meet the Jetsons, or if the love, <laughs> if the love boat ever went to Fantasy Island. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, it's one of those you know, mythic mashups that never happen, because yeah. I think you and I have sort of been following each other's blogs yes. for a few years, but never... Yes gotten together to do stuff so yeah well we did we did do the double as poster this past january which actually got a lot of really good reception from a lot of people um there was a lot of people that were fascinated by it and we i still need to do some follow-up on some of that stuff to try to 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 get people uh, involved in that Mm -hmm. but uh yeah it's interesting how much this topic has become kind of an issue and it's really good to have people that are putting together Lots of different types of content that people at various different levels can use for both their informal education needs and their formal education needs. Um, you know, because this stuff is, you know, it, it's kind of hitting the classroom, and we and it it's it needs to be dealt with in a, a professional and coherent way. I think so. It's it's good to yeah. I think I think a lot of us who are doing this kind of stuff need to collaborate a little bit more, but and that'll help uh, preserve and and pass the material down so the next generation isn't reinventing the wheel because this stuff always resurfaces again, as I've found out many times in my studies of the topic. And by this stuff, you're talking about what you refer to as crank astronomy, mm-hmm. which I actually I wanted to ask you, um, why did you choose the term crank? <laughs> well. Phil already Phil Plate already had bad astronomy, and actually I knew him a number of years ago when he was when he was fairly early on in this. I had originally uh, done dealing with creationism and astronomy because I uh, was involved in a local astronomy club where a creationist was actually trying to insist that because we met at a public school, we had to sort of give their their views equal time. Um, mm-hmm. 
this kind of got me reinvolved in the stuff in in the latter part of the 1990s, and um, and that's when I kind of started my my first website dealing with creationism and astronomy. From there, things kind of expanded out because one of the things you find is that a lot of these claims they sort of feed off of each other, even though they might be selling you a totally different large worldview. They tap a lot of the same anomalies in science and stuff like that. You know, Electric Universe and Creationism for a while were both tapping the, the neutrino shortage in the sun as evidence mm -hmm. of their particular claim. And so it was sort of like, well, you know, I'm doing this, I'm reading this stuff about the, the neutrinos for dealing with the creationism, but it also applies to this other thing. So, and I've, I've tried to actually start organizing things more topical in the sense of, you know, this topic is common to these thing, these different fields or these different you know crank claims, and trying to leverage it a little bit more from there to try to pre present the science in a more coherent picture and show how it applies to others. And um, some some of the groups get really upset by this comparison um, because I do occasionally tap off. Hey, you're using kind of the same argument as this group over here, which is arguing a totally different thing. Yeah, uh, you've, you've actually been accused by at least uh, one emailer to me of setting up straw men by create, uh, not creating, conflating creationism and the electric universe. And when I tried to defend you by saying, <laughs> well, you know, you just started out with creationism and your blog is branched out, it turns out that you actually do compare the two a lot. Why yes. do you? Again, there's a, there's a lot of them use very similar logical fallacies. Um, and again, they mine many of the same anomalies in science. Both of them will use, um, like I, I did a multi-part post um, a little over a year ago on Halton Arp's discordant redshift claims. Both of them use that as evidence that either a the Big Bang is the Big Bang is wrong. I mean, that's that's the main the main hit is the Big Bang is wrong in some way. Um, and so you know, it's it's sort of like this false dichotomy of a oh, if the Big Bang is wrong, their theory must be right. Um, and I had great fun with um, with a post um, where two uh, one person supporting creationism, one person uh, more Electric Universe favored at least, arguing that because Lamatre was a priest, the um, Big Bang cosmology was intrinsically religious. And therefore, one was arguing it should be completely discounted, or oh, it's completely correct. You know, <laughs> that's what Jason Lyle has been trying to pull in the last few years by saying that the very fact that we can reason with logic mm -hmm. means that logic was introduced by God. Therefore, everything God, God, six thousand years, God, right, God, right. Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's a, that's one of the big big issues is that you know they tap a lot of this type of stuff. Um, the um uh we're, yeah I could I could get distracted on Lyle here because I haven't done too much with his stuff, um although I am curious about his um, I'm not sure if you've heard of this this um this asymmetric asynchronous lights travel thing that he's yes. trying to use to claim so there's some interesting issues with that that I've not seen posted anyplace else but I'm I, I've, I've he, he's he's on my to do list yeah same with mine yeah he. <laughs> This, and for listeners who have absolutely no clue what we're talking about, so this gets back to the changing speed of light stuff that creationists really somehow have to say that the speed of light is not what, or has not always been as we see it now in order to get a young, or in order to get an old universe, they have to 
do stuff to get a young universe. And I covered this a lot in episode 81, but I didn't get into Jason Lyle's own version of how to solve the speed of light issue for creationism. And that's because it's very weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. Do we want to get back to the electric universe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get so, little, we're getting a little bit... We might be moving slowly far afield here. But, well, uh, so, uh, you know, if we go too long, I'll just cut it up into two episodes. Um, okay. But, yeah, actually, as a little bit more background, um, I wanted to know what kinds of claims you tend to investigate the most. I mean, after all, the blog is called Dealing with Creationism and Astronomy, and for those mm-hmm. trying to find it, it's Dealing with Creationism and Astronomy.blogspot.com, and then there'll be a link in the show notes. I should have fixed that. <laughs> it's got the longest link. It uh, does have a long, a long URL, but you know, it's yeah. Dealing with Creation, you know, so it's very easy to actually yeah. remember. But, so, I mean, obviously you got your start with creationism. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if if that's what you still like to, uh, like being relative, but like mm-hmm. to address the most these days, or if it is EU stuff, or if it's something else entirely. Well, the creationism stuff, I mostly started out with Barry Setterfield. He was the one that was claiming the speed of light had radically changed over over you know fairly recent times, and therefore this, this could compress a... a, a an apparently old universe into the the six thousand uh, year time frame or thereabouts. Uh, one of the things that was interesting about his stuff was he often presented some mathematics, which mm-hmm. made it you know you could point out errors in that. Uh, one of which was he would do he actually did an integral of his curve for light speed, and you find out that the furthest away it could go was like three times his age of the universe, so the universe could be like 18,000 years old at most. So he was kind of, it was kind of stuck there, but that was one of the things that I pointed out. But later on, he started, he, he became, um, he started using a lot of things from electric universe, particularly stuff from this book by Donald Scott called the electric sky. Hmm. And I would see occasional references to plasma cosmology, which I'd actually looked at back in the, in the 1990s when I was in grad school. It was one of these books that, um, it was addressing the um, kind of the dark matter problem in, in galaxy formation and stuff like that. It was uh, done by the, uh, well, it, um, but I'm getting a little too far afield there. Uh, <laughs> okay. so, for, the, for the listeners to set, to set the stage, um, what years or decade were you in graduate school? I was in graduate school from about 1989 to 1994. Okay, so this was really before we had found dark matter, and it was one of those ideas floating out there for yes. to explain things like the rotation curves of galaxies, why galaxies, the stars in the outskirts of galaxies were moving faster than what should have been the escape velocity, so they shouldn't be there anymore, and so there had to be missing mass, or maybe gravity was wrong. And this gets into Mond that I actually talked about in the Pioneer Anomaly episode. Um, so... Dark matter was very much at that point uh, a very young field, not even really a theory. Even it was a, really just a hypothesis, right? Well, yeah. Although you can uh, go b- trace some of the origins of it back to the 1930s in Fritz Zwicky, uh, who was the first that sort of speculated about this and seemed to get results that indicated that there was some missing mass. And I think uh, Vera Rubin, actually, the last Cosmos episode talks about it a lot. Does a very nice piece about it. <laughs> but, Plug um, for Cosmos, great yeah. gift for everyone. <laughs> Yeah, and um, so this was one of the way, ways to solve that. The plasma cosmology was an alternative at the time to, to solve that problem. But getting back to, to Setterfield and the electric universe stuff. So I actually broke down and, and, and bought this, this book. 
and started going through it. And this was an experience like I was like, you know, I've read creationist stuff. And it's like, okay, well, you can kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could not hardly go through a page without just about seeing red, you know, <laughs> foaming at the mouth. It was, it was really bad. I, you know, it was something where I thought, well, I'll just read it casually and, and, you know, I'll find a few spots here and there. I couldn't write a thing. I couldn't go through a page without finding some kind of major problem. Oh, it's and like it, reading Hoagland or Barra. Or oh, possibly, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be reading that too. Since some of my coworkers gave me a copy of that as a gag. Uh, <laughs> but, um, it, it, and so I, I started going into, the, into this. And some of it is just, you know, again, the, the same kind of anomaly whining. That, uh, the, that the creationists use, you know, the, oh, they don't understand where the, the solar neutrino problem, so the sun can't be powered completely. And the, one of the interesting things that I thought, in some ways, electric universe is easier to deal with than creationism, because creationism, they have to move their problem far out in space and therefore far back in time where it's more difficult to do measurements. Mm-hmm. But the electric universe started making claims that are a hundred miles over our head or less because they would do things like, well, the sun isn't really nuclear powered. It's actually these powered by these giant streams of electric currents traveling through space that like hit a, a, a massive ball of, of gas and light it up like a neon bulb. Yeah. Well, um, let's get into that one later. Cause yeah, I want to, I want to talk to you about the electric sun. Yeah. Oh, that, 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 that's one of my favorites. Cause that, cause it's just so, it has so many implications for space flight, and yet they always dance around these. Um, but anyway, the so so these were things that I that I just started reading this book, and and I wrote my first. Um, I just started assembling this stuff. There was I wrote the first big rebuttal called uh, the Electric Sky Short Circuit. It's still technically in draft, linked off my website um, after the the main website crankastronomy.org, which is where I I moved after Apple shut down their. Um, their uh, web web hosting service, where yeah, the, been... the whole iTools thing, and we were guaranteed yeah. lifetime usage, and then it's like, well, the lifetime is not your lifetime; it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's my lifetime. We decided to have it on, yeah. <sighs> but um, yeah, so you know, I spent a, you know a while searching for another hosting provider and finding out what kind of services I could get through and stuff like that. But but it was, um, and I'm still fixing links from that transition too. So if you so if you if your readers look for that and are having trouble finding the link to it, drop me an email and I'll 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 try to fix the link in the regular posts and stuff like that. But um, and it well it was one of these things that you know you started off thinking it was going to be a little short thing and it just got longer and longer and longer. And there's a lot of good exercises that I that I wound up putting in there. But uh, in terms of things like one that you might appreciate on crater formation where the argument is that, oh, craters aren't formed by, you know, impacting bodies because they don't find any remnant of the impacting body. Well, that's not quite true. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's actually formed, you know, they, they've got these little experiments where someone's, you know, taking a little plasma gun and, and drilling little holes in pieces of metal and saying, see, this looks just like a crater. <laughs> um, but... The trick is you can do a very simple energy calculation, and, and, and a huge amount of this stuff can be done by just doing your energy budget. You know, the, it's like it's like, and business people should understand this. The book's got to balance. The energy going in has to match the energy going out. And you know, you can do the calculation of how much, say, a, a ton of rock uh, or even a solid iron impacting at 35 kilometers per second. 
How much energy does it release? And I did a rough calculation in the rebuttal, but I got that it was several times what was necessary to vaporize a, a, a mass of iron. Of course, the mm -hmm. issues are a little bit more complicated for smaller objects because you have more air drag. They'll slow down a little bit and may vaporize completely before they get. But the large objects, even them, they hit and they they, they essentially become a bomb as the as the the shock of the impact propagates through them, vaporizing the rest of it and just sends it all over the place. And you find, I, I, and let me know if I'm incorrect here, but I think you find little bits of like little bits of iron and stuff like that all around some of these impact sites. Yeah. There's, so, I mean, it, I actually, in my bathroom, <laughs> I have a yeah. sample um, of the impactor that formed Meteor Crater in Arizona. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so the Canyon Diablo meteorites, uh, mm. I mean, you know, the, the impactor comes in and at least on earth, it, it, because of the atmosphere, it um, can go along and propagate any existing fractures, and so little bits and pieces will break off. But when that thing hits, <laughs> it's vaporized in the time yeah. it took me to snap my fingers. It yeah. Well, actually, not quite. It's vaporized in the time it takes for it to travel or bury itself in the ground, basically. Mm -hmm. So its length divided by its velocity or vice versa, if I got my unit screwed up. So yeah. it... I mean, it vaporizes almost instantly. But, I mean, that discussion was something that happened a century ago I mean, mm -hmm. in, in the scientific field. I mean, this is why uh, Gilbert, I think, the first director of the United States Geologic Survey, he said Meteor Crater was volcanic. It was mm -hmm. not an extraplanetary impactor. And because of that, Beringer kind of got screwed. But <laughs> <laughs> since, uh, since that time, um, yeah. it, we've realized that, yes, this stuff actually does happen, and therefore this is actually a, an impact crater. But it seems to me that the Electric Universe people haven't quite caught up with that. And actually, I think that that is a, a decent segue into uh, my next very scripted question of uh, tell us a little about the history, you know, how... How did the Electric Universe stuff start? I mean, what is the basic idea? Why did it start? How has it progressed? What's the modern version? And wrap it up in one minute or less. <laughs> <laughs> well, well that's oh, oh, well, no pressure. Yeah, um, okay, yeah, 20 minutes, okay. whatever. The, um, the interesting thing about, about this is that a lot of this you can sort of trace back into the 19, late 1800s, early 1900s. Uh, back around that time, the elect Maxwell's equations had just been formulated, and everyone was doing all the things they could with these equations to test what things. You know, Hertz was finding, oh yes, we do see you know radio waves and stuff like that. There, there, there's this whole range of things to, for generating them. Um, and, and that's so, the eleventh episode of Cosmos. I think. Uh, yeah, uh, the yeah, the Electric Boy. I think they talk about Faraday, okay. and, and they go into some of that stuff. But um, they had all these really you know. That was the big, the new interaction. You know, they previously it had been gravity and friction and all the stuff of classical mechanics. Electromagnetism was really the first field theory that we had of things. I mean, we had we you could sort of like measure like fluids and stuff like that in fields, and that probably set up some visual metaphors for electromagnetism that later turned out to be incorrect, like the ne the need for an ether and stuff like that. Um, so it, it goes back to there, and 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 a lot of these ideas were actually looked at. The notion that you know you know they they do these things in like rarefied gas discharge tubes, run an electric current through, and it'd light up. 
Well, it's certainly a logical thing to do to say, hey, th what's that comet thing? Uh, th th maybe it's an electric discharge from the sun. And people actually looked at a lot of these ideas. There were some things, um, th and you can actually find some interesting papers around this time of this stuff. Uh, some people did some very fascinating experiments. One of the, the, the pioneers in, in this area was Christian Birkeland in Norway. Mm -hmm. um, he was one of these guys that just, he... Um, he was very he was very flamboyant. He was kind of like Tesla, where he was he wanted to do business. He wanted to do these big demonstrations. He was he was kind of a little bit of a publicity hog, but he was a very careful experimenter. And he set up the, these things that he called Torellas, where basically he would have two electrodes, and one of the the electrodes was a sphere with an electromagnet in it, and he would adjust the electromagnet and f have the electrons from one from the cathode. Um, move over to the um, to the other thing, which represented the Earth, and they the would form these. Yeah, huh? The anode. Yes, and they they would form these little rings like the aurora. And Birkeland happened to be right on that. Yeah, this this he thinks this is the way the aurora form. Hmm. And so he was essentially correct on that. He had a lot of other ideas that he attached to that notion. One of the things I. I you know the some of some of the cranks are saying, "Oh, you should really you know read Birkeland." So I, I actually read through the entire Norwegian Polar Aurora Expedition book. took took a while. It took a, a couple of months to go through this because there was so much interesting stuff in it. You know, he's got a lot of stuff where he's got his data tables and stuff like that. But he was very careful on what he did, and he tried to write it down and 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 report it as accurately as he could. And you can't fault the guy because there were things that he didn't know at the time. He was working in the late. 1800s, early 1900s. He died 1917, I think it was. He actually died kind of young, but the, his Aurora expedition was actually done around 2002, 2000, or not 2000, uh, 1902, 1903, and um, he didn't really get it all written up until around 1913, including his data tables and stuff like that. But he actually, from his Torella experiments, he tried to do this analysis of the Aurora, assuming that there were these currents flowing down and going back up in the upper atmosphere. And one of the things he did, he, he actually took Maxwell's equations and said, okay, if there was a current coming down and going back up like that, what kind of field imprint would you measure on the ground? And so he would get, you know, he, he got a value for the magnetic field and he would take, he, would, he, he was one of the first like big science guys in some ways. Um, he got a bunch of people internationally organized to set up stations around the world to, or, to observe the aurora and do these magnetic field measurements so he could start collecting them together. Uh, Gauss had already done some stuff, and I think Halley had done some geomagnetic stations around the world as well. But he tried to organize this for the aurora. And one of the things he, he did, one of the interesting comments he makes in, in his book is that, you know, I'm using this this. I measure this magnetic field and I'm saying it's associated with this particular current that that's coming down and doing this, this little shape in the upper atmosphere. But this is by no means means that that current actually exists. He knew the understood kind of the limits of what he was doing. He knew that, you know, okay, well there, there could be a current up there, but this was a convenient way to parameterize it. He had an experiment that seemed to show this type of behavior coming, coming into his anode, his little Torella, you know, earth. And so he constructed this 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 model, and basically the magnetic field value that he measured on the ground was the thing he used to parameterize the current 
that he thought was up, above, you know, high up in the Earth's atmosphere that was raining down on the Earth and creating the aurora. Turned out that he was right. Those were, those essentially were, they were basically electron beams. Where he was kind of off was that they weren't exactly from the sun. He was do, doing this, this setup with the, with the, um, with his Torella setup, and he had to put a voltage between them because otherwise, you know, the, the, the electrons would just boil off and go in every which way. He wanted them to go over to the, the thing where he was had his Earth. So he had to set up a potential with them between them about yeah, anywhere from two to 10,000 volts is what he was working with. So he, he, so he had this issue where he had a, a setup where the electrons were going to go one way, but the ions were going to go the other way. Now, this is still the early 1900s, so they don't really know what the inside of the atom looks like yet. There's th there, th this is all this early stuff where I'm, I'm not even sure if uh, 1913 was when it was published, and that was when the Bohr model was also published. He doesn't mention the Bohr model of the atom, in his, and Berkman does not mention the Bohr model of the atom in his book at all. But, um, you know, this was all, a lot of this stuff was still in a state of flux. They were just now learning that, you know, what, what an atom is like inside. They knew about electrons, but they weren't sure about this other, you know, positive ion stuff. Mm -hmm. They weren't sure what they were seeing. So he had this, this arrangement where basically the electrons would go one way and the ions had to travel the other way. It turned out that for the temperatures I think his system was operating at, they would actually travel in opposite directions. Although numerous people pointed out to Berkeley that, well, you know, you can't have like electron beams coming from the sun to the earth because, you know, there's no way to confine them. They would spread out by their mutual electrostatic repulsion. And so two negative things don't like to be together, basically. That's right. And that's another, that's a, that's another issue you run into with the electric universe. Um, so, you know, he would say, that, oh, well, I believe that electrons and ion, you know, negative and positive corpuscles, that was still the term they were using back then, are coming from the sun. But he also wanted to emphasize his experimental configuration. I think this created sort of like a, a, a way that people interpreted stuff um, that created a little bit of a conflict. Where, yeah, in his particular experimental setup, the electrons and the ions had to travel in opposite directions. But it turned out the electrons would would still be able to make the trip. It didn't prove that, and that was one of the things that was one of, one of the, the problems for his, for his ideas. People didn't quite know what the impact of that potential that Berkland put in as to how it actually behaved in nature. So, because they would, they, people looked at ideas of whether the sun could be, you know, how much electric charge the sun could actually hold. Um, because, you know, again, at that time, electromagnetism was the, best cool new theory they had so the um so there was a lot of issues with with, with some of berkeland's ideas and berkeland actually um proposed three different models of the sun and and you'll find a couple people that are trying to still support these things today but uh, he had one where the the um the sun's surface acted as the cathode the photosphere and then he had he had three different versions. Then there was the anode either below the photosphere inside the sun, above shortly above the photosphere, just outside the sun, or somewhere off in distant space. And for various reasons, he makes statements that he sort of kind of preferred the one that was off in distant space. And he put a potential between this thing of about six hundred million volts. That's a whole other story of how of how that he got that number uh, because. Relativity wasn't quite fully baked at that time either, and you will find modern people who do modern 
researchers who do this same calculation, you'll get more like a billion volts, which explains a, a little discrepancy that I that I had noticed. But anyway, Berkeley got this idea, you know, it was the electric beams that were coming from the sun, and that was the way a lot of people looked at it. And that kind of interfered with Berkeley's the acceptance of the idea, I think, um, was that his experimental configuration clearly had to have the electrons and the ions going in opposite directions, but they couldn't see a way that the sun could just send beams um, to the Earth through a pla through a, a, a regular plasma. Um, it would later, strangely enough, fall onto Alfane to demonstrate that what you're actually seeing with the regular electron aurora is not beams coming directly from the sun, but when the sun interacts with the Earth's magnetosphere, it kind of rattles it, and there's these other regions where the electrons sort of precipitate down from there. So they're kind of like secondhand electrons. So some of them boil up from the Earth's upper atmosphere. Some of them come, make it in from the solar wind for various, by various mechanisms. But they're kind of trapped in the radiation belt region around the Earth, forming part of a, a basically a current system. And every once in a while, you know, the solar wind pings it, and you know, and it vibrates, and it sends a bunch of material down in to make the aurora. Um, and Alfane was one of the ones who demonstrated that, yeah, there's, you know, this is probably how that happens. Although there were others back in, in that uh, one guy that worked with Berkland called named Carl Stormer, who worked with him quite a bit and put a lot of Berkland's ideas on a rigorous mathematical foundation. However, they had a little bit of Berkland and Stormer eventually had a little bit of a professional falling out. Um, although Stormer, is, Stormer, back just prior to space flight, he wrote this book called The Polar Aurora, where he summarizes everything that was understood about the polar aurora, the polar aurora at the, around 1955, which is a fascinating piece because it was just before space flight. So it's sort of like the, the definitive of what we knew prior to, to actually having satellites up there to measure this stuff. So in that case, in that, it's a fascinating read. It goes into a lot of details. So a lot of his work actually became important. Uh, a lot of Stormer's mathematics actually became important for the study of cosmic rays, doing the mathematical trajectories of, of charged particles coming into the Earth's magnetosphere and where these particles might get trapped. But anyway, so so Berkeley did this stuff back in, in, in the early teens. And and you know, some people like to say, oh well Berkeley was, you know, this lone genius who, you know, was totally forgotten and ignored by science. But I've actually found um, George Ellery Hale, when he was doing some of his early studies of the sun, had apparently read Berkeley because he he actually proposed a model for sunspots that were kind of like the Earth's polar aurora, where when he was doing the first magnetic fields of the solar photosphere, um, that the the magnetic field forms like this conical like a like a drain type thing and funnels the material down into you know an inner dark core of the sunspot and he actually mentions Berkeley and Stormer as you know the the inspiration for this model um, for sunspots so they weren't unknown he, he Berkeley was known of in the United States um, a lot of, a number of mainstream researchers actually cited him. But, you know, a, a lot of the modern people who like to romanticize some of this stuff, oh, you know, he was, a, he was a lone, you know, genius that was totally ignored by, you know, mainstream scientific community. Eh, no, nah, not really true, I don't think. Um, but anyway, moving ahead, a lot of this stuff, there, there was also one other guy back in the 1900s, uh, this, uh, whom I just recently read, uh, George Woodward Warder, who actually wrote a book, uh, he was a lawyer who wrote a book of sort of, poetry, but, but he'd written books of poetry, but he also wrote this sort of um, uh, invisible, several books along the notion that the universe is actually electric. In there, he proposes things like says gravity is actually an electrical force. Um, and um, 
uh, a number of other things. He, he argues that, you know, electrical forces, you know, it's the thing that controls the body. He mixes in various other pseudosciences like hypnotism and mesmerism. But I think this is sort of like the, the poetic book that is often the inspiration work. But he also ties it very closely with Christ, uh, a very Christian interpretation hmm. of, um, of science. And he he goes on. Um, it, 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 some of his things were were actually propagations of, of of ideas, notions of intelligent design, because he talks about how Darwin followed the dirt and um, Moses followed the spirit of man. And so, so this I think this book might be one of the things that ties a lot of Electric Universe to creationism, and maybe the, one of the pieces that that inspires a number of creationists to integrate Electric Universe into their particular version of creation science. But it's a fascinating read because he's, again, written around uh, 1899, and he talks about these big demonstrations in the late 1800s of solar collectors providing electrical energy, which, strangely enough, was in a Cosmos episode. <laughs> Uh, you know, they, they were talking about these big demonstrations in the early, late 1800s of these big, these guys that did these big solar collectors and showing how they could generate electrical energy to electrify the world by power from the sun. And then oil became cheap enough that it sort of beat out that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that was a fascinating thing. So it did. And there's a bunch of things where mainstream astronomers were looking at electric fields and the influence of charges in in, co in cosmos cosmological things. Um, one of the first, uh, when I was in grad school, my advisor once said uh, th this thing that he said, you know, the sun's actually held up by the electric field. I'm like, what? And then you thought about it for a second about, you know, how it's completely ionized inside. And if anything ever gets out of balance, there's an electric field that pulls the stuff in and keeps the stuff very neutral. Um, and it turns out there's a couple guys, and I'm probably massacring the name, well, one of them I won't massacre completely, Pinocook, I think is the way it might be pronounced, and Rosslyn, who in the 1920s actually had worked this out. They had done a, basically a, a kinetic gas calculation and found that, well, yeah, this, you, know, you put these two things together with gravity and, and electrostatics, and it'll form a stable configuration. But very close to this, and it'll, it'll be largely neutral in the center. Because this for these forces of you know the electric you know if, if anything gets out of balance it sets up an electric field that automatically pulls it back to a neutral state, except near the surface. What happens near the surface is you've got electrons which are very light and ions which are very heavy, but they're both at the same temperature. So what that means is the electrons being light will move a lot faster than the ions being heavy. So at the surface, the electrons can travel up a little bit higher than the ions can. Sort of like, you know, escape velocity type situation. So you get a little bit of a charge separation. And that sets up a little electric field, which they, they call the Pinocchio-Grosslin field. And I've written a little about that, bit about this. And one of the, the fascinating things is you can sort of roughly estimate the charge that is created by this. It's about 70 or 80 coulombs per solar mass. Now... Anyone who's old enough to remember those big electrolytic can capacitors, I think you can get one that holds about 77 coulombs. And this would have had, this would charge difference would have been spread out over the entire surface of the sun. Of course, the big problem with the idea was that it assumed everything was nice and static and steady and stars don't form clean. So there's always going to be some leftover motion and the fields are going to always flux around a little bit and stuff like that. But 
in the 1920s, before they even before Langmuir even defined the term plasma, a few years later, astronomers were looking at electric fields in space. I found references to attempts to de define the, what the charge is of the sun to interpret comets as an electric discharge. They actually do a, a calculation of well, and one of the guys found out that you know the charge he got on the sun I think was about a hundred times larger than the charge estimated from other means and so he's like ah oh, that's probably not right but you don't hear about this from from the modern incarnations of the electric universe um supporters they can't even do the similar calculation but jump ahead now you know they, they there's loads of references to this kind these kinds of analyses that people looked at uh from the 1920s on and one of the things um uh around the 1940s um Emmanuel Velikovsky came on the scene and he was writing up some stuff. One of the early pieces prior to Worlds in Collision was a little piece called Cosmos Without Gravitation, where he basically says that gravitation must be also an electromagnetic phenomenon. And from there, he developed Worlds, worlds in Collision and that whole notion that, that you know, the, there was basically a game of cosmic billiards. And, the, you know, the, there's, there's a whole issue about how that was handled and whether the scientists did the, the smartest thing and inadvertently, you know, invoked the Streisand effect, giving him more attention right. <laughs> than he really needed. Um, and it seems like a lot of modern uh, Neo-Velikovskians are electric universe people yeah. as well. Yeah. A lot of it is very closely tied to it. And some of that seems to be related to around the late 60s, early 70s or so, um, I think the first name is Ralph Jurgens, an electrical engineer, wanted to find a way to to put this stuff on a firmer basis. And as a result, he he proposed an electric sun model. This was the the, the first electric sun model. Apparently, um, you can find some stuff on the on. There's a couple of, of sites that archives sort of like Velikovsky's writings and stuff like that um, that talk about that. You can actually find some of the original papers um, online. A number of people um, that I've I've worked with actually along the Electric Universe lines have, have worked on trying to get some of this stuff available. Hmm. Uh, some some of them are convert, converts who used to be electric universe believers who have since decided that no that's not right. <laughs> but um, so that was kind of the 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 sort of the start of of what we now call the electric universe, um, with the, this notion that the sun is really not powered by nuclear fusion but actually by um, external electric fields, and. Um, Jurgens had done a number of calculations on, on this. I haven't really looked at Jurgen, the details of Jurgens' paper a lot because a lot of it actually is subsequently adopted in later versions of the model, which basically have a lot of the same flaws. But they had a lot of things that were kind of helping them at the time, one of which was the, um, um, the, the neutri solar neutrino problem was just coming to the fore at that time. And so this, this was something that was sort of like, oh, yes, there's, not, there's no neutrinos coming. Actually, it wasn't no neutrinos coming from the sun. It just wasn't enough neutrinos. Uh, there were plenty of neutrinos coming from the sun. So th this helped, helped feed some of this. It also helped feed some of the, the, the young Earth creationist stuff. The other interesting thing is you can find uh, some scholarly papers where people have actually looked at Velikovsky's work and think that he might have provided the inspiration for some of the modern creation, you know, scientific creationism ideas. Hmm. That fact that he got as much attention as he did 
may have been the inspiration to um i can't i'm not sure about the the um the particular creationist name who did i think i think it was like the genesis flood or something like that published a few years after worlds in collision and um this might have provided the inspiration for that and the fact that Vilikoski tied a lot of his stuff the biblical cataclysms made that much much easier to for others to for christians to to sort of that were uncomfortable with evolution in an old universe and stuff like that it made it easier for them to to accept it um and from there it's sort of ma it's it's sort of evolved into this um you know there's there's several major players the main site for sort of like i guess the core velikovskian group um is uh, the thunderbolts.info site which has a lot of this material um there are several other um sites that archive velikovsky stuff there's a couple of sort of um journals that try to tie mythology with science um you know taking like old observations in antiquity some of which you know you have questions were they actually observations or were someone did someone have water that was a little bad <laughs> uh, so or, or or you know smoking something that wasn't quite right um but you know they they interpret these these various things that people you know glyph, glyphs you know and cave drawings and stuff like that as possible electrical electrical events in the sky you know people trying to interpret aurora and stuff like that um and so that it's it's kind of tied in pretty pretty heavily to some of that stuff um the issue one of the big issues with electric universe stuff is as i was saying before is that unlike the creationists who try to push their stuff far enough in the past the electric universe stuff has impacts right above our heads in places that we're currently flying spacecraft. And that means that it's much more measurable. Well, so we, but, but before we get to that, um, you, you've given us a lot of information. And I wanted mm -hmm. to see if I could sort of try to summarize just to make sure that uh, I'm on the same page. Excellent. So it sounds like the electric universe, the basic idea is that stuff is governed by electromagnetism as opposed to gravity or relativity existing or various other things that mm -hmm. this idea is just E&M. It, it, it makes the world go around effectively. Right. And yeah. that it was sort of developed maybe a century-ish ago mm -hmm. because of the electromagnetism revolution. It was mm -hmm. the, the latest and greatest thing in, in physics, mm -hmm. and people wanted to see what else it could do. And so these exactly. models were developed, and sometimes they were shown to be accurate or sort of accurate, like with the Aurora. Mm -hmm. But in other places, uh, especially once we learned more about physics, especially with nuclear physics in the 19. 40s and 50s which and I, atomic physics uh, yeah that's nuclear and, and atomic yeah <laughs> yeah uh which we'll get to especially with the sun uh but it was when with these new versions not versions with these new fields of physics we started to see well no actually this other stuff is what's going on and it's mm -hmm. not an electric universe or electric phenomenon that governs this and the problem is is that people like with every field some people just refuse to move on from that. <laughs> yes. And that they, they bring in, well, weird kinds of arguments, mm -hmm. a lot of special pleading kinds of arguments to try to um, keep a hold of those yes. ideas. Yeah. Okay. So 
Yeah. Yay, I summarized it in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I guess actually bef- before we move on, um, there was a, a listener and someone who's a very frequent emailer to me, uh, Graham, sent me uh, a book on plasma cosmology, and, and uh, he wanted to know. Uh, and you said actually that it could it fits in sort of to the history of the electric universe, and uh, maybe in uh, three minutes or less, uh, how does plasma cosmology <laughs> apply? Well, plasma cosmology again, uh, I, as I said said before. Um, there were there were some notions. Alfane was one of the originators of some alternative cosmologies. And, and remember, cosmology didn't really start nailing down until like the late '60s, early '70s, when we started having some of these these ideas refined. But there was a lot of different ideas. I mean, that's that's the nice thing about science. You know, when when you really don't know, the the field is just wide open. You know, and everyone proposes all kinds of wild ideas for it. And the goal of experiment is sort of like whittle down which ones actually fit the data much better. Uh, it, it, but, it, but the nice thing about the theory is that it guides, helps guide your experiments. What, okay, this theory predicts this. Do we have anything that we can get going that can measure that? Uh, this theory predicts something totally different. Can we get anything going to measure that? So in that sense, the theory guides the experimental observations um, in, t- in terms of the motivations for various technology developments. But again, going back to the dark matter issue, um, Alfane uh, had done some work along these lines, and, and Alfane was a Nobel Prize winner. He developed magnetohydrodynamics. Um, and which basically MHD, the bane MHD. of every every yeah. grad student. Yeah, yeah, that's and it, and it's tough stuff. Um, but you know, the the initial formulation was that you know everything is is fairly uh, neutral plasmas that are quasi neutral. They they don't they don't deviate from from um, from uh, neutrality for the most part. Uh, but some of the interesting things that were done was uh, a fellow named Tony Peratt at. Um, Los Alamos, I think it is. I think that's right. Um, had he get, they, he had this lab with these big electrode things, and he could do these various types of plasma experiments. And of course, back around this time, there was also a lot of this equipment being built in the hopes of you know maybe one day we'll control nuclear fusion. But so he had these various experiments that, that setups that he could do these these types of things, and he actually had a. Um, an actual compu- he'd run a computational model of these things because they were you know the nice thing about some of this stuff is you can do, do it in laboratory scale and actually run models on on stuff that's about the right scale. Um, so he also runs some supercomputer simulations of these ideas of say you have two currents flowing in space that are sort of next to each other and they'll and depending on how their magnetic fields are oriented they they may attract or repel each other but they can become twisted in with each other and it turns out that. If you look at the cross-section of these two intersecting currents, as they, they're merging, they're forming a structure that looks very much like a spiral galaxy. It has two arms, and, and it, it kind of rotates around. And it does sort of have a velocity profile in the outer edges that matches roughly the galaxies of, of, of spiral galaxies, saying it's kind of constant velocity on the, on the outer reaches. So this was one of the, this was one of the things that was really kind of interesting, and, and like I said, I got a copy of, of um, the Big Bang Never Happened on my, on my shelf that I picked up in, in the 1990s when I was in grad school, and this came out, and there there were a bunch of people that actually looked at it. for a while. It was actually a, a perfectly good field of study. Um, they you know pre- they did they did the right stuff. They they said okay here's our here's our idea, here's a mathematical model that seems to generate these predictions. Um, so they had the, this thing with these inter- intersecting currents. Now, we didn't really find out 
well, what's driving the currents? That was one of the one of the issues that was with it. Also, you're looking at a problem where, you know, we see these flat spiral galaxies. They're they're flat things that are that are have this spinning structure. And he has this long cylindrical thing. And what we're seeing is like this slice through this long cylindrical thing. So there's a bunch of predictions that it made that didn't quite seem to work out. Like you'd expect to see the galaxy, you know, spiral galaxies kind of like lined up with their, you know, on like multiple slices on, on a tower, like, like, uh, you know, these people that, you know, like the, your CD, the thing of CD blanks you put in, have next to your computer or something like that. You know, it's just a little stack of, of galaxies sort of stacked up like that. <laughs> and it doesn't, it doesn't seem to quite work that way. Uh, cosmologically, they have seen some evidence of some interesting alignments with the galaxies, but they aren't lined up quite like that. Um, there's been some stuff where they, they've measured, tried to measure the, the orientations of spiral galaxies around the edges of voids, and they seem to be kind of like the axis is like tangent to the bubble or something like that. Um, so there were, there were things like this. But there were, the big issue was these things should have been humongous microwave emitters. Because you've got an electric current. It's got its own magnetic field that's, that's helping to confine it. Um, and... So they should have emitted micro, a huge amount of microwaves, and they were, you know, they had radio astronomy at this time. They 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 could look at several bands, and they tried to look at ideas like, okay, maybe what we're calling the cosmic microwave background, because back then we only had looked at little patches of the sky, to do this. Maybe that's what what's actually doing creating this cosmic microwave background. And they did various calculations to try and see could could you know various over superpositions of these currents actually create, reproduce the cosmic microwave background. And they found out they could, you know, very judiciously choose a distribution of currents that could match up if you had something like 10 to the 31 different currents that were sort of like overlapped on any given patch of sky. Now, that, that's, that's a pretty large number. Um, yes. <laughs> so to overlap. But it also had the issue of would it match the uniformity in the sky? And that was where it started running into a problem because if these currents existed, you'd expect the ones that are closer to us to be a little bit brighter. So you'd expect to see sort of these enhancements close to the Earth or, and, you know, and it would sort of like fade into this cosmic, this more uniform thing further away. And so Kobe came out with its result in um, 92, I think. Something that like they, that. that they, where they had, had published their first map. And I was taking a cosmology class at the time, and I remember the, the professor coming in and said, "Man, says you know, because they had already been down to like it was like ten to the minus five on five on the size of the perturbation." He came in there and says, "Man, says there's a lot of people who are sure glad they found that because everything would have been up in the air after that. <laughs> there would have been a lot of cosmologists going, oh, burn that, yeah, burn that, but we got to start over.' But um, so, the, so it, it sounds know, like a, you know a, another case where again. People were considering the electric universe model, but the or plasma cosmology, yeah, and it just it didn't work. Yeah, and yeah, and it's it's you know, but like I said, Peratt and them actually tried to do legitimate science. They tried to address the problems, and they got solutions that were sort of almost intelligent design like <laughs> you you had to really do some special pleading of what well, well maybe you know all there all these currents are stacked on because people that like the idea of an infinite universe really kind of liked plasma cosmology it didn't imply a beginning it did it, it, it 
freed them from other issue, other baggage of the notion of, well, the universe had a starting time. Isn't that kind of like Genesis? You know, and so it, it fed, helped feed that other aspect of it at the time. But, um, yeah, so Kobe, though, didn't quite have the, quite the resolution. It was kind of blobby on the, on the map, so you couldn't really see evidence of any currents. But WMAP came on, and when did they put out? They put out their map, I think, in the early 2000s. Yeah. And that one clearly did not show these sort of streamers across the sky. And right. Peratt even explicitly stated that he expected to see these spaghetti-like streamers across the sky. There's a couple of papers of his that I quote uh, and reference on it, that this is what they were expecting to see in the cosmos, in the microwave background. We see filamentary-like structures in the kind of in the foreground that all appear to be attached to our own galaxy. There's bits of bubbles from the like supernovae going off and then pushing plasma out, and, and you see these arcs and stuff like that. Some of it is highlighted by you know the, sort of the shock from the supernova. There's some other stuff that's been trapped in the galactic magnetic field that creates some highlights along through there. But these are all local to our own galaxy. There's no evidence of this thing streaming well above and below. Although they have you know recently, I think Fermi has reported that they see. Like this bubble above and below, a bubble, not a current stream, of um, evacuated area that might have been in the, from back when uh, Sagittarius A star might have been a, a more active galactic nucleus. So, yeah, they 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 and they made a good effort to it. In some ways, I regard them kind of like the Mon guys. Who I'm not sure if Mon's been totally ruled out yet, but the Mon guys also, you know, initially they they proposed these ideas. There was a little extra force. And they actually did the calculations. They did end-body simulations, trying to do star clusters and galaxies and all the and you know larger scale cosmologies and stuff like that. They made an actual legitimate effort to do it. They they played science the way the game is made to be played. You right. put your idea out there. You do you you show what you your basic model is. And the beauty about you know science is the mathematics. The, by being mathematically worded, there's well-defined rules for how to do stuff. You know, you come across this 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 worldview, science worldview thing. Oh well, they they can't uh, you know get this result because you know it's the wrong worldview. Ken Ham was invoking worldview during the debate with Bill Nye quite a bit. You know, oh well, you know in the creation worldview, you know you get a, you can look at the same data and get a totally different interpretation. Yeah, and, that's AIG's big thing is yeah, worldview. Yeah, plasma cosmology does the same. Or not, Electric Universe does the same thing. They 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 take a more philosophical bent. Um, even in uh, Eric Lerner's book, uh, The Big Bang Never Happened, he does this sort of, uh, uh, oh, the, the Big Bang cosmology evolved from the notion of the heat death and thermodynamics. And so as a result, you know, they, they, and they try to tie it to, oh, well, this says the universe is going to die, but we don't like that, that, you know, that future view of the cosmos of, the, of an eventual heat death. So you know, we're, we're going to support this cosmology. And that's, that's the problem you run into is you get too, ingrained, too attached to a particular philosophy. And while you know, worldviews are fine for you know, maybe some parts of your politics, they're a real problem when you try to apply them to science. Um, there's you know, a lot of pseudoscience that has damaged countries that um, have basically been based on world, the notion of there's a worldview and, and of, say, a certain national view, and our science should reflect that. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it locks them out of a lot of opportunities. Well, um, Russian Lamarckian genetics. Yes, yes, and Deutsch physics, too, is my other popular one. 
which which I which a lot of people have alluded to, but that we've never found the smoking gun that that really was one of the things that hurt their aspirations for a nuclear weapon. <laughs> but because they were ahead of every every other country at the beginning of at, at the start of World War II hmm. in nuclear physics, but they squandered it. You know, they basically basically their their people could do it. And there's various arguments about whether Heisenberg and his group actually you know, deliberately undermined the effort. And there's some evidence that. That isn't quite what happened. Heisenberg made a math error and didn't realize that it was actually possible. <laughs> but uh, which I've got a piece I'm hoping to write up one day when I get my thoughts on that completely organized. But um, so you you run into this problem of of you know these these guys that they wanted to plasma cosmology. So it kind of died off. Um, there were some other stuff. There was a um, you know they they try to get published. A lot of stuff was published in IEEE. Uh, transactions on plasma physics, and there were some issues there. They at the, around this time in the the 90s, I think they were start. Uh, the Electric Universe was starting to sort of adopt the um, the a plasma cosmology as part of their own ideas. Um, this created some interesting interactions. I've been told that um, that Tony Peratt, who was the the, the physicist that uh, did the uh, the his galaxy model of the twisting uh, current streams, said that that um, if um, Halton Arp's interpretation of discordant redshifts was correct, then that just automatically ruled out his model. But that doesn't stop Electric Universe supporters from both, you know, supporting both Arp and and um, Peratt's model. Um, but yeah, so so the plasma cosmology guys, you know, they they made a good run of it. They did. They played the science the way it it, it should it the proper way, and. After a while, it's it's kind of died off. I mean, the people, the main people that actually knew how to do this this kind of work, haven't really published anything on it in like a decade, well over or well over actually on on some parts of it. Um, there was a, a special you know, IEEE plasma science. I think I might have said in the nineties. I think it was actually early two thousands that was put out that. Uh, you could look at some of the Electric Universe papers in there and see that someone didn't really do their E and M quite right, <laughs> but um, so which has apparently created a, a little bit of an embarrassment because there's now like a disclaimer on the 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 sort of like the pl- the IEEE Plasma Science homepage saying we're not involved with these Electric Universe guys, hmm. so. So, but that doesn't stop the Electric Universe guys from saying, "Oh, yeah, this is you know they, they say peer reviewed." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that was kind of a problem. I think is is that it looked like one of those failures of peer peer review, kind of like you know the way the creationists have done the thing where they they kind of have like an inside guy who signs off on the stuff mm-hmm. and lets. I think there was a NCSE has a, a article on their website about a, a publication where this this kind of happened or was attempted. I can't remember whether it actually got in the final public. I think it was Electric electronically published but didn't make the actual final um result because people said wait a minute what's going on here um but yeah so they the um electric universe guys they sort of adopted plasma cosmology and you will and you will find a lot of the stuff talked about in fact if you insist that oh well you know electric universe doesn't have any any actual testable mathematical models they'll always point to the Pratt model even though they've been making Claims about the, the structure and, and operation of the sun and loads of other things. That's the only actual mathematical model they can point to, hmm. even though it's failed. 
They, they, they just won't tell most of their support. Oh, yeah, we've got mathematics. It's, it's sort of like, you know, someone's like uh, doing the scattergun approach to checking off boxes. And they say, well, you know, like usually you have a theory. Well, does it, it predicts this and do we see it? You know, it predicts a, you know, a current string. Do we see it? Well, no. Do we, do we uh, see the, the rotation curve of the galaxy? Well, yeah, it matches that. But they're doing this kind of scattergun type approach of, oh, well, this model matches this result over here and this radically different model matches this result over here and this radically different model matches this result over here so our stuff must be right but they never do a, a consistency check on the same model so that's, seems like that's, what i've noticed actually from creationists exactly so again you know like I said, a lot of the, a lot of the thinking style can be reused so you know i'm 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 all you know i like object oriented programming i like encapsulation and and, and code reuse and and i found that you know very often i can you know rattle off a piece if i've read up anything on the electric universe i find it touches several creationist issues along the way so hey you know why not <laughs> well so uh, going back actually a little bit um it's actually something that I've noticed, at least in a lot of your recent blog posts, is that you endeavor to make the distinction between real science and pseudoscience. And you do that by saying, okay, what are the predictions? What's the model? Let's see if the predictions actually match. And uh, I, I assume that that's on purpose. And oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so, <laughs> you're, you're writing it, so obviously you're doing it on purpose, but um, I'm yeah. curious as to why you do that so explicitly, uh, especially, I mean, since your blog has been around for several years and you're still mm -hmm. doing it that way. Um, well, one of the things that is, tell you the truth, it's, it's in some ways it's kind of fun because it gives me a chance to experiment with models that you know, and develop like new skills programming and stuff like that. I'm, I'm kind of an older than average guy on doing some of this stuff. And it kind of helps keep my brain sharp. And I've actually found that some of the uh, mathematical models I've used, I've written for doing this kind of stuff, actually have application at work occasionally. <laughs> um, so, but it, it, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a way to play, you know? And so I, I enjoy it in that regard. But also... You know, computers as tools nowadays are so readily available, and there's easy things to use for programming. You know, there's Java, there's there's uh, Python, which I like to use uh, a lot because I, I've gotten really enamored of the object-oriented paradigm. But and there's there's ways that we can some of these things they can be taught at a very introductory level. Um, I used to when, when I first started messing around with computers, there were these books that were out there. You know, they they had like like the the the, the graphical. You know, someone did a graph. You know, using the text characters. Now you you probably don't remember that. Not uh, particularly. You know, yeah, but people would make pictures of by you know having a line print or whack you know multiple characters to give it a different grayscale and stuff like that. And oh, make, now I remember that. that. Yeah. Well, yes, people okay. do that in their signature lines for yeah. Like, they, you know, they'll do yeah. Some people will do that trick in their sig, sig line, um, but. I always loved those things because they would take the, the science that you thought was really abstract and turn it into a problem that you could solve yourself. And that's the cool thing about science. Is if you know the math, the language, then you can do things with it yourself. Um, the, uh, you know, some of the first stuff, one of the first, when I first got hold of a Apple II computer years ago, one of the first programs I wrote, Skylab was getting ready to fall out of the sky. Well, one you're dating program, yourself here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but... And one of my first programs was doing a Runge-Kutta integration of an orbit around the Earth, showing you know when the atmosphere, an atmospheric density and stuff like that. And that was one of my my first real programs that had graphics and stuff like that attached. Hmm. And 
that was enjoyable. I did some stuff with a with a Schwarzschild solution, and I, I did one of my first in body probs, which was fun also. And I I get back to this, and you know, like now I've got a little in body code that I actually use on on the site a little bit. I actually should just go ahead and go ahead and put that on GitHub or something like that, so others can play with it. Where in um, body is uh, you're simulating a bunch of particles uh, particles moving and, under the motion of either a mutual field or a field that they've created yes yeah, so it, it, which so, is what i do with actually saturn ring simulations it's n-body yeah, so oh, yeah, yeah. yeah five hundred thousand yeah. particles moving around saturn and seeing what happens yeah yeah i find i actually eventually read uh, the the maxwell's paper on that which is a fascinating read um because i'm in all this history stuff now um but yeah, so it, it's kind of fun to do that. And, and the thing is, a lot of them they teach programming, they teach lot, teach, teach logic, they teach the math and how to apply the math. Um, and so you know, I, I like trying to develop these things, and then hopefully at some point they can be put together in a form that can be integrated into the classroom. Because some you know. You know, when I did the Barry, the Barry Setterfield CDK stuff, you know, it was basically a thing of mapping out all the problems that can be done there and find out ways that you can integrate this into the classroom. Because it's actually a pretty good, simple exercise that students with a little bit of calculus can actually do. Hmm. And so, you know, let, let, you know we, everyone complains about, well, we just teach science as a bunch of facts. But it's actually a process. And let's, you know, we, we always teach, well, you know, this is how we, what we know. Well, let's teach how how we know what we don't what we know is false, and various pseudosciences provide excellent mechanisms for that, excellent food for for exploring that. Um, and in the case of the electric universe, um, I, I was I was a kind of a junkie on on J D Jackson's classical electrodynamics, which I, I know a lot of graduate students regarded as just the, the most awful book they ever had. But it's this big yes. thick thing about two I think I have the second edition. It's about two inches thick. And it but it has all these wonderful ways of how to analyze problems in electromagnetism. How do you to go from Maxwell's equations to how an antenna uh, field works, you know, which, you know, which ways, uh, you know, you, you have your enhanced stuff. It, it had plasma, it. it had a little bit of everything. And, um, and this was kind of a fun way to get, get back into that stuff. Um, a lot of the electric universe, you know, for especially the electric sun models, one of the things that, you know, they, they'll say like there, there's about four different ones that I've, I've talked about at various levels on, on my blog. One of them is attributed to, um, um, Wall Thornhill, who basically is arguing that the sun is powered like a, a, a light bulb on a big Birkeland current going through space, and it lights up, and the sun lights up because it's a ball of gas sitting in there that lights up like a like a fluorescent bulb. Well, so let's well, actually hold off on that, and okay. we'll say that this is uh, the end of this first part, and okay. next episode. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, we've been uh, an hour already. Uh, so next episode, oh, yeah. um, uh. we'll talk about the electric sun. All right, so thanks again to Tom Bridgman for joining us and enlightening us, uh, no pun intended, well, maybe pun intended, about the electric universe. So we talked a lot about the introduction to the idea, what it is, some of the early ideas, and that it really was, like a lot of these modern pseudosciences, like even Planet X, it really was a valid idea back when it was proposed. It was just, let's experiment and see what happens. 
Problem is, is that we did the experiments and we saw that it doesn't actually fit with reality. The predictions made by the electric universe, by plasma cosmology, by all this other stuff, don't really fit with what we observe. And the other ideas that we now have for why, you know, these are why they actually are our models currently, those fit better. And so that's why we tend to reject the plasma cosmology, the electric universe, all those ideas now. So as I said in the next episode, we're going to talk about the solar capacitor, the electric sun, all those fun ideas. And I realize also that there was a lot of... um, Inside terminology in this, N-body simulations, uh, Kobe satellites, WMAP, Planck, uh, Fermi, all that stuff. There will be a lot of stuff in the show notes for those of you who want more information on what we were talking about. Uh, For those who didn't quite know and aren't actually interested in reading the show notes, basically it's spacecraft, it's uh, cosmic microwave background, radiation is the leftover echo from the Big Bang when the universe first became transparent uh, and light could stream freely. And uh, I think that those were the main two things. So... With that said, thanks for listening, and uh, for those of you who are currently at TAM, because this is slated to go up on, I guess, the first day of TAM, uh, find me, have fun, and uh, enjoy Vegas, but don't enjoy Vegas too much. Don't do what I wouldn't do. That wraps up this topic for the 115th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment for the page of this episode on the website, on the blog post for the episode, on the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me, at PseudoAstro. That is in generally reverse order of the speed with which I reply, where tweets are usually replied to first. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback and am perpetually behind on getting back to you. If you have suggestions for topics, please, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, and random people that you may or may not meet in real life. 